welcome to the Beyond the Sermon podcast, where we take your questions from Sunday's teachings in order to form a dialogue about the scriptures and what God is teaching each and every one of us. Welcome back to the Beyond the Sermon podcast. Today here is Friday, January 13th, and uh, normally record these right after second service on Sunday, but had had some commitments on Sunday and then ran right into a full week. So I'm playing a little bit of catch up here, but uh, wanted to get to the questions here as we are in the book of First Peter. And uh, last week we were in our second, our second week, our second section of First Peter, um, and and Peter is diving into the ethical realities or the the ethical convictions that believers should should have or should should live out should be espoused and and seen in in the life of a believer. Remember he's writing to people who are who are facing significant social challenges to not just to the reality the validity of their faith but but they're literally being mocked for their faith. And so so in that this book is 2000 years old. It's written to a group of people that were living in modern-day Turkey at the time, uh, which it wasn't modern-day Turkey at the time, but it's the geographical location of modern-day Turkey uh, here. And, uh, and, and so, so while this book can feel very distant and it's not set in our location and <laughs> all of those kind of things, it's also incredibly timely and incredibly relevant for us today in our cultural moment. And so um, I just, I love the questions that came in that were dealing with the nature of evil, the problem of evil, the question of evil, and and even the, the question of Christian responsibility of how do we actually honor those who are unhonorable, those who do evil, those who are not interested in, in cooperating with the plans or the purposes or the perspectives of God. So how do we do that? Uh, it really are a lot of the questions that came in. And and one of the challenges, and I just want to start here, uh, one of the challenges with the letter of First Peter is that in so many ways, Peter doesn't give us, he, he doesn't give us the, 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 the prescriptive, um, you, you do it this way, right? He, he did tell us in chapter 2, in the beginning of chapter 2, he said, look, uh, you know what, what are the things that aren't supposed to define you? What are the things that you're supposed to put away that you're supposed to get rid of? He said, you know, put away malice, put away slander, put away deceit, right? Um, and and so he's given us some very specific actions to do, but in a lot of ways, what Peter does for us here in this book and what he did for the original audience is he gave them general principles to apply. And he said, here, understand this principle, know this principle, know this truth or or, or this idea, and then, and then apply it to your life and your individual situations and scenarios. And so, so as we go through this book, if you feel any tension of like of the well, what does this mean for this scenario, <laughs> right? And I and I think as each of these questions that have come in, I, I hear them and I recognize that they're asked with specific scenarios and situations and contexts in mind. And we go, well, well, why don't, why, you know, why don't we just, why don't we just answer that specific question or whatever? And Peter would say to us, well, uh, I want to give you the principle. I want you to understand the larger, the larger ethical commitment or conviction or ethos that we are to apply and then apply it with the help of God's word, with the help of God's people, with the help of God's spirit to your specific situation, right? And so we have to work those things out. So there's tension and there's challenge in, in that and in that reality. And so uh, so with that tension, we're just going to, we're going to begin to go through and 
and and walk through some of these uh, some of the questions that have come in. And again, I love these questions, and I love that we get to have this dialogue through the text, through hard passages in the text, through tricky situations in the text, so that we can follow Jesus in in an increasingly life-defining way, right? None of us are perfect. None of us are following Jesus completely. Um, We are to be increasing in our following of Jesus. We are to be increasing in our abiding in Christ, in our obedience. That's what we mean when we talk about following Jesus in a life-defining way is that, that John chapter 15 tells us that we are to abide in Christ. It means we're to, to, to remain in Jesus. We're to find that, that he is the best way, that his, his rules, his precepts, his truth, his perspective uh, for life, on life, um, should not only inform how we live, but ultimately when we walk in it, when we abide in it, when we literally remain. That's what the word abide means. It means to remain. It means to stay, to set up shop and be there. When we abide in Christ, it means that we're going to be obedient to his to His commands, to his teachings. Uh, we're going to hold to his perspectives, his principles, um, and and his values. They're, they're going to be found in our lives. They're going to be lived out in our lives. When we do that, we actually experience flourishing. And we experience hope, as Peter said, hope that does not pass, hope that's incorruptible, hope that is uh, unfading, hope that that cannot be put away by this world. Why? Because it's kept for us in Christ. He is the one who has defeated the grave. He is eternal. He is fully God uh, and fully man, Philippians chapter 2, that he emptied himself, he humbled himself, he lowered himself uh, to take the form of a servant, um, yet he is the pre-existent author of creations in uh, Colossians chapter 1, 1 John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was God, was with God, right? Uh, the Athanasian Creed, Athanasius is a is a pastor, a leader, um, sometimes the word bishop is thrown out, but he's, he's an influential leader in the North African church in the 300s, and he writes a creed and he says, you know, uh, Father Almighty, Son Almighty, Spirit Almighty. There are three Almighties, uh, yet there is also one. It is one Almighty, right? That it is, we believe in the Trinity: the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit. All are uh, the three persons of the Godhead. Um, they are all existent. They are all co-equals. Um, there, you know, and, and so Jesus is part of that. Uh, he has been part of that. He'll always be part of that. Yet in his earthly life and ministry, he humbled himself and took on our form to serve us so that we could become reunited with God, restored with God, our father. And there's just a, this, this beautiful reality of that. Uh, even the Nicene Creed in uh, 3, um, 3, 325 there, the Nicene Creed uh, establishes that uh uh, the reality of the Trinity, uh, but also or affirms the reality of the Trinity that we've seen in the scriptures, that we've heard in the scriptures, taught in the scriptures, um, but also the humanity and divinity of Jesus, that he is fully God and fully man, right? And so because of that, because Jesus reigns supreme, because Jesus has authority, because Jesus, as Peter says, holds and keeps our salvation for us, we want to follow him in a life-defining way. We want to abide in him. We want to be obedient to him. And when we do, we find that because he is the one that offers us abundant life, John 10.10, 10, 
that that we find that when we hold to him, abide in him, that we flourish and our neighbors flourish. And we flourish in part now on this side of heaven, even as we walk in a broken age, and we will flourish fully, completely in the age to come, right? So that's what our hope is, is steadfast in. That's what our hope is anchored in. And so as we talk about the questions of ethics and evil and those kind of things here today, uh, just know that's that's the... That's the surrounding framework. And, and Peter says, I want to give you the principles to help you to work out individual situations. But Peter couldn't address every single individual situation there for that audience. And so so even today, we're going to feel that tension of, well, well, what does this mean for this scenario or this moment or this situation? And so so here's the, here's the beginning question. The first one is, at what point is it acceptable to defy authority? And what we heard on Peter, this is a great question, right? And it's one that we wrestle with. Um, and it's one that has been wrestled with for, for uh, a long time, for, for most of human history, in fact. So at what point is it okay or is it acceptable, approved to defy authority? And what Peter would say is this. He would say that you are to honor, you're to respect, you're to follow authority until commanded to sin, right? Until commanded to sin. So remember in in First in Peter he gives us he gives us four instructions. He says, "Fear God. This is the believer's ultimate uh, call, right? Why? Because God is the ultimate authority. So we are to fear God. We're to obey God above all else. We are to love the brothers. What Paul, what Peter means by this is that we are to love our Christian brothers and sisters. We're to care for them. We're to meet needs. We're to bear with them, bear patiently with them, strive for unity, not to be divided with one another. Right? So we are." to love one another. And by the way, Jesus said this in John chapter 13. He said, um, a new command that I give to you, love one another. And the way that you love one another, uh, others will know that you're my disciples. Others will know that your life has been changed, that you follow me, that that my way is a better way. And so, so Peter reaffirms it. Love the brothers, love the church, love the Christians, love your brothers and sisters in Christ, care for them, provide for them, meet their needs, right? So first call, Fear God. Second call, love the brothers, love the sisters in Christ. Third call, honor everyone. Everyone? Everyone, as we said on Sunday, right? And then finally, honor the emperor. And remember, the context that this is speak, uh, Peter's writing into is the emperor was Nero. He's not a good guy. He, in fact, makes uh, makes the majority of our of our leaders uh, look, look sane, okay? Um, so contextually, if... If Peter thought that Nero could be honored, well, then we should be able to honor our our leaders and those that are in authority over us, okay? Um, so at what point, though, is it acceptable to defy that authority? It's when you are commanded directly to sin, okay? When you you are commanded directly to sin. Now, we might, be able, we might talk about, well, what about my religious liberties, my rights that are being infringed? Is that wrong? Yes, right? We, we are a nation that has been established on the concept of liberty, specifically religious liberty for all. Now, here's the kicker to that. That means that in a religiously uh, and philosophically pluralistic society, if for one group to have liberty, it means that all groups need to have liberty, right? So we have to talk about the implications of that. So, um, so if I want my religious liberties protected and I live in a pluralistic society, um, then I need to make sure that I'm protecting other people's right to uh, religious liberty, correct? 
And so with that, sometimes we can we can have the perception that that if a policy affirms or protects other religious liberty, that it's infringing upon my religious liberty. And even if it is infringing upon my religious liberty, do I still have the ability to practice that without punishment? I think these are the things that we have to, these are the lines that we have to be very careful of in a, in a religiously uh, and philosophically pluralistic society, right? When am I actually being commanded to sin? When am I actually being commanded or forced to go against God's prescriptions uh, that are found in the scriptures, right? Not just not just general principles or policies that might make it um, uncomfortable for me or seem to infringe upon my rights, but when am I actually being commanded to uh, to disobey? Uh, the commands of God. And I think that's that's a tension point that we have to wrestle through, that we have to think through, right? And so so part of it, though, is, is as we think about our own pluralistic society, how do we interact with authorities? How do we honor them? Well, one of the ways that we honor them is is by voting. And we think, and we need to think deeply and thoughtfully about when we go to the ballot box of who we're voting for. And we also have to realize that there's no there's no politician, there's no leader, right, that is going to lead us to a utopian uh, society. Um, the only leader that will bring us to a perfect society is Jesus himself, and that will only happen upon his second coming, right? And so so we, we hold all of these things in tension. We, we want to enact good policies. Why? Because people matter to God. People are deserving of honor and value and dignity. That's what we said when we honor others, we treat them with with value and dignity that is bestowed upon them, not because the government said so, not because uh, my neighbor said so, right? It's because God said so. And God said so in his creative work, his, the creative order that he created man in his image. So all people deserve honor. Right. And so, so in that we we need to we need to work for human flourishing, and yet also recognize that in a pluralistic society, uh, we are going to have different perspectives on the policies that we might implement to uh, um, to bring about human flourishing on this side of heaven. Right, and, and so there's room for that. There's room to work out to say, hey, you know what? I believe, I believe that the, that, that the scriptures are clear, that we are to have the ethical conviction that the widows, the orphans, those that are in need are to be taken care of, right? So two Christians can go, we hold to that, Christ, that, that ethic, that biblical godly ethic, that we're not just to abandon people, that we are to care for them, right? In their moment of economic distress and economic need. And so we're not to abandon them. Why? Because they deserve honor. They deserve dignity. They deserve, they have value. Why? Because of the one who created them. Okay. Those two Christians can hold to that very ethic and go, you know what? I think plan A is the best. And, and the other Christian can go, well, actually, I think plan B is the best, right? They can come up with two different plans to meet that ethic and, and disagree on it, right? So we have to, again, we have to hold tension and space to have conversations and not just to, not just because someone doesn't share my policy perspective, um, especially a brother or sister in Christ, that they don't hold my policy perspective to lobby at them that their perspective is 
evil or morally corrupt or those kind of things, right? We could we could argue which policy is the best for human flourishing, but we also can stand together and say, you know what, we hold to the same ethical conviction. And um, and even as we talk about honoring others here in this passage, and we're, we're going to continue to talk about honoring others, this this next question uh, comes in, and uh, and it's a good one. It's a good one of, of differentiating or, or defining between things. It says, what is the difference between honor and respect? And really, really, they go together, right? You probably can't honor someone who you don't respect, but but here is here's an important distinction. When I honor someone or when I respect someone, that doesn't mean that I affirm or that I am that I am engaging in every aspect of who they are or behavior or decision that they've made, right? Um, so literally the dictionary when talking about respect, it means to admire, it means to admire, right? And so there are things that I can rem- admire about every single person under the sun, at the very most basic level, again, as we talk about honoring someone, I can I can admire that God created them. I can admire that God created them. I can admire that they have autonomy and rationality and those kind of things. Even for the most uh, evil or heinous person out there, I can respect that part of them. That does not mean, and this is an important distinction within our modern cultural moment, because we have a struggle with equivalence. And here's what I mean by that. We so often are, are told that if I honor somebody or I respect somebody or I am in relationship with somebody, friends with somebody, or to be friends with somebody um, or to be in good relational standing with somebody, I have to affirm, support, um, engage in, um, make make able for um, their disordered desires, Right. Um, and, and so for, for I, I am I am now bound one and together with whatever expression of sin that they are partaking in, right? And and that's just simply not true. It's just simply not true. And we we understand that in our in our most close interpersonal relationships, right? I have relationships with people that that I disagree wholeheartedly on a whole bunch of issues on um, or even practices on, but that doesn't mean that I can't honor them, I don't respect them, that I'm not friends with them, that I don't love them. And so so we have a, we have a problem uh, in our modern moment with equivalence, and that is that we misconstrue love or honor or respect with, with un, unboundaried support. Right, uh, where where it means that uh, sometimes we use the word allyship, and uh, and this idea of being an ally is literally meaning to enable someone's sin, someone's disordered desire. Nope, that's not what it means. <laughs> that's not what it means. Jesus was called a friend of sinners, and he does not encourage or enable sin. Right. Um, so if Jesus can do this, then we can do this. Um, and so we just have to be very careful. We have to be very careful not to buy into the cultural rhetoric around the equivalence problem. And so so the difference between honor and, and, and respect, um, I think the, the two things really, they go together. But when we talk about respect, it's, it really is this idea of admiring somebody. And, and sometimes we have to work hard to find things uh, that we admire about somebody, okay? Uh, but they go together. Why? Because when you respect somebody, you also honor them. And when you honor them, you also respect them. That does not mean, that does not mean that you are going to say that you're going to carte blanche rubber stamp 
everything about that person, every decision, every perspective, every action. Because frankly, I hope that people don't do that for me. I hope that there will be people in my life that will say, I love you. You are my friend. I'm in your corner. But brother, you got to figure these things out. (laughs) This is not godly. This is not best. Okay. I'm hoping that there are people in my life that can be my friend and speak truth. Uh, to me. Um, remember, when we, we've defined truth and grace, um, John in John chapter 1, G, uh, John tells us that Jesus came in grace and truth. He is the fullness of the image of the Father. He's made God known to us, and he's come in the, in, in, in the fullness of grace and truth. The law came through Moses. Grace, think, grace and truth came through Christ, right? So um, the reality of grace, grace is getting something that you don't deserve, but you can't have grace unless there's truth. You need a standard. You need something to be held accountable to in order to experience grace. Okay? So that's really, really important. So when we talk about these things, especially when we talk about the modern problem of equivalence, we're not talking about giving up on truth. We're talking about loving people, supporting people, just as Jesus did. If Jesus could be called a friend of sinners, if Jesus could go to the barbecue at Levi's house, um, and with a whole group of sinners that were there, Levi was a tax collector, remember, and and he does not affirm or support or enable their sinful, disordered desires, we should be able to do the same in our multi, uh, multi-philosophied, uh, multi-perspective, uh, pluralistic, secular society that we live in. We should be able to do those things as well. Why? Because we are in Christ. And as we are in Christ, we are filled with the Holy Spirit, and which gives us the ability and empowers us, helps us to walk as Jesus walked, right? And now, that does not mean that any of this is easy, and it means that we're going to have to think thoughtfully and deeply and considerately about the scenarios and situations that we are walking in and through. And that's why Peter gives us, um, he gives us again the, uh, the principles to apply, but does not give us every individual scenario and how to apply them, right? He sets us up to do that work on our own. So um, the next two questions really come in together. And, uh, and so uh, this question says, the, the first question here says, how does one submit in good conscience to authority that is evil? When does a believer stand against evil? Uh, asking for a Bonhoeffer example, or, or noting Bonhoeffer, for example. Um, and so again, so here we have to define the word evil. And here's, here's just a quick definition of evil. Evil is any act or event that is contrary to the good and holy purposes of God. Theologically, when we talk theologically about evil, it is the act or event that is contrary to the good and holy purposes of God. Theologians also distinguish between two categories of evil. That is uh, moral evil, what we call sin, and natural evil. That's living in a broken world, right? Um, Natural evil, floods, fires, hurricanes, those kind of things. That's natural evil. We live in a broken world. Um, diseases, famine, all those things, natural evil. We live in a broken world. Some, uh, some of those things can be avoided. Some of those things can be lessened by our practices. 
But we live in a broken world, and and Paul tells us creation groans for its redemption, right? So again, we look to the the our future hope, the the age to come, where not only we will be humanity, uh, and those who are in Christ will be completely restored, given resurrection, uh, resurrected, glorified bodies. Um, but creation itself will be restored. Creation itself will be glorified. Creation itself will be set back to its pre-fall state, right? So that will be the elimination of natural evil. But uh, when we talk about moral evil, evil, we're talking about sinful actions. And sinful actions are just, it, it, it's literally, it's anything that is opposed to God. It's going against God's preferred way of life. So how does one submit in good conscience? Uh, we have to do the hard work of going, uh, is this policy my preference? Uh, is this policy, you know, does this, uh, does this policy, um, uh, am, I, am I excited about a policy? Right, we think about taxes. I don't think anybody is excited about taxes. I don't think anybody is excited about every aspect that our tax dollars go to, right? Um, but we're commanded to pay taxes. We have to pay taxes, right? So um, when I pay my taxes, I'm submitting to the authorities that are over me, um, yet I do it um, not with a, uh, not with a man, I'm so glad that I get to do this, <laughs> right? We, we walk and we operate in that tension of, is this policy my, pers- my, my perspective? Is it my preference? Is it how I would do it? And there's room to say, no, I would rather have a different tax system. I would rather, um, you know, uh, go about those uh, things in other ways. Uh, But here, this is the authority God has placed over me, and I'm going to pay my taxes, right? I'm going to be a good citizen in that way. Uh, Leading back to our opening question, when is it okay to defy authority? When is it okay to go against authority that is evil? So authority that is evil, um, which, by the way... um, even though we are told to submit to authorities of this age, um, it, we, we hear it in Paul in Romans chapter 13. We hear it in Peter here in 1 Peter. That we, are, we are to submit to those authorities. They also don't say that those authorities are naturally good or godly, right? Um, in fact, Peter in chapter 5 of this letter is going to refer to Rome as Babylon, and that's not a good name. That's not a good uh, picture here for uh, for Peter or for for Rome, right? Uh, if you think of harkens back to the Old Testament, Babylonian captivity. Babylon Babylon was evil. Babylon was corrupt. Okay, um, so again, they're not giving they're not giving the Roman emperors a, a pass here. They're not saying that they're they're great or godly. Even in the Book of Revelation, we will see that uh, that that God will hold God will hold all authority all evil, all injustice accountable. He will make those injustices right, and he will restore restore the injustices, right? Um, He will have righteousness over them. How he will do that, we don't know, but we know that he will do that, right? And because he promised Jesus and he delivered on Jesus, uh, he delivered on the Messiah, we know that we can trust him for that final completion act, right? Where he has righteousness overall injustice that has ever occurred, okay? Um, So, again, when is it okay to defy authority that is evil? And specifically in our definition of evil, moral evil is any action that goes against God's will. When is it okay to do that? Well, I think when it's okay is that when you have the space or the uh, ability within public discourse to express your opinion, 
right? To say, hey, you know what? I don't think that that policy is best. Um, that can be a, a way of, of, of defying authority is simply expressing a godly opinion um, is a, a way of defying authority. Um, in, in fact, in the Roman world, in the letter of First Peter here, and as Paul writes, the most subversive act, the most subversive act that the church had, politically subversive act the church had, was actually communion. Because when they took communion, they declared that Jesus was Lord and that Caesar wasn't. Now, they didn't say it, they didn't go, and we declare Jesus is Lord and Caesar isn't. They're not saying that phrase. But in the action of taking communion, they are declaring that Jesus is the ultimate supreme authority over heaven and earth, and that even the emperor, even Caesar, is under Jesus. That's the most politically subversive act in the first century. Now, um, in our world, um, we can defy authority uh, by giving by giving protests, by giving opinions, by writing op-eds, right? Those kind of things. We can defy authority that way. That, that doesn't even land us in, in, in prison. When we do those, when we express those opinions, when we use those words, when we verbalize those things, again, we have to keep Peter's Peter's uh, framework in mind. Uh, are we are we uh, writing? Are we speaking with malice? Are we speaking with slander? Are we speaking with deceit? We can't do those things. There's not freedom for us in Christ to do those things. Uh, but we can we can talk about it, and that's a that's an action of of defying authority, right? That's an action of saying, "Hey, this is not good. This is not godly. I I I'm not I'm not here for those things." Um, as we take communion, as we gather and worship, that's a politically subversive act because we're stating that the ultimate authority over heaven and earth and over every government and over every person and over every leader is Jesus himself, right? That is, that's, that's just as subversive today as it was in the first century. And then, and then, and then finally, um, again, if we are commanded directly to sin, if we're commanded directly to sin, then it is okay for us to openly defy, openly, um, you know, go against those commands. So we go back to Bonhoeffer. Uh, Bonhoeffer is uh, living during Nazi-occupied Germany and Nazi-occupied uh, um, uh, Europe. And, uh, and so, again, we go to the whole uh, situation of, of hiding, hiding Jews and hiding those that were being, uh, were being, um, uh, you know, uh, arrested or, or captured for the, for the Holocaust. Like, uh, believers had a moral obligation to preserve life. Believers had a moral obligation to preserve the lives of their neighbors, um, and the people that were around them who were being exterminated and murdered by the Nazi regime. And so this is where Bonhoeffer comes in. Bonhoeffer resists that authority, right? Um, he resists the the literal command to turn in your neighbors so that they would be murdered, right? Um, Bonhoeffer eventually uh, dies in a in a um, in a concentration camp uh, because he participated in an assassination plot uh, to assassinate Hitler. Um, now, there are lots of theologians that debate whether Bonhoeffer was right or wrong to do that. We're not going to dive into that. But Bonhoeffer uh, operated out of the moral conviction that, um, that life needed to be preserved, and the emperor, uh, the Fuhrer, right, uh, Hitler, was literally giving a command to turn in your neighbors. Um, there was no Christian, no believer that was under any moral obligation to obey that in any in any way, right? And so, so again, I think we just have we have to walk through these things. But um, coming into that, because if our definition of evil again is this, any action that is uh, against the the very the very will of God, the very um, 
um, uh, the very precepts of God, um, we also need to think deeply about when are we actually commanded to sin, when are we compelled or forced to sin, and when are policies just simply not our preferred policies or our preferred expressions of how to meet specific needs. And so, so uh, this next question comes in and asks, it really asks for, uh, for multiple examples, right? Of in, um, in Western American uh, society today, we have trouble with authority. We're a very individualistic society. That really comes out of uh, the, the rise of Enlightenment philosophy. We're very much shaped and formed by Enlightenment philosophy. You think of uh, Rene Descartes' uh, most famous maxim is, I think, therefore I am. That is that I have existence, um, that I have um, being, that I have purpose um, because of my ability to, to think, my ability to, to be rational, right? And so, so it's just very much this rise of self in, in, in contrast to non-Western societies, which uh, the self is less important than the whole. The self is less important than the whole. And Peter is writing to a non-Western context, by the way. Um, so as Western thinkers, readers, uh, people, we have to keep those lenses in mind. Like we, we have a very individualistic lens by our cultural nature that we inherited from Enlightenment philosophy and the rise of Enlightenment philosophy. It's one of the, um, we can go in, we could go deeply into the, the structure of uh, even Western American uh, civilization foundations. Those aren't necessarily bad, right? So don't hear me say that, that that's inherently bad. It just means we have to understand how we approach and how we think through different things, okay? And so again, so um, uh, on Sunday I mentioned, uh, I ha we have to be very careful that we are not, uh, uh, again, having the problem of equivalence, that we are transposing. When God says, hey, have this ethical conviction, and we go, well, this policy is the only way to hold to that ethical conviction, right? That this is my preferred policy or my preferred perspective. So an example of that, so there, this question, again, asked for, hey, uh, what are some examples? Uh, felt like you wanted to get at some things, but uh, you were trying to tread lightly. And I was treading lightly because Peter treads lightly. Well, uh, I guess treading lightly um, in that we're trying to offer a principle for application, okay? Um one of the classic principles for application here, or as we think through, one of the classic examples in our American Western context is that of immigration, right? It, it is a biblical command. We see it all through the book of Isaiah. We see through, we just see it all through the scriptures that, that we are to be, the God's people are to care for the orphans, the widows, the poor, the needy, the foreigner among you. You see it in Leviticus, you see it in Deuteronomy, uh, in the story of uh, Ruth, right? We see the, the laws of the gleaning that uh, the farmers were not supposed to pick all the grain from their field, that they were supposed to leave some behind for the orphans, for the widows, for the foreigners that were among them so that they would be cared for, right? So God puts a law, a gleaning law in place for uh, Jewish society, Israelite society, to be a better way, to show a better way. Right? Um, and so how do we apply that ethical conviction that we are to be care, that we are to care for the flourishing and the, um, uh, the health of the poor, the needy, uh, the orphans, the widows, the foreigner that is among us, right? Um, and remember, when God tells Israel to do this, he reminds them, he said, and you were foreigners also at one time, right? So he reminds them of why they're to do that. He reminds us of why we are to do that. When we were estranged from God, he sent Jesus uh, to welcome us back into the family. And so how do we apply that ethical conviction to, uh, to immigration policy in 21st century America? 
Well, again, frankly, two believers can have uh, hold to that ethic and yet go, I think policy A meets this the best, and believer the other believer can say, well, I actually think policy B meets this, right, uh, the best. Uh, and so, um, so we can have discussion and dialogue around that. We can agree to disagree on those things, on the policy execution side of things, while agreeing on the core ethical principles. So I think part of this is, is just being very careful that in the church we don't participate in the larger cultural issue of equivalence, that we are willing to talk with one another, that we are willing to see what is the core principle that we are uh, unified around, um, you know, where, where are we giving uh, liberty, freedom, charity to each other in, and that we are showing that there's a better way, that there's ability to be unified even in our disagreement, right? And so, so we just have to be very, very careful because, because we're told by our, our larger cultural rhetoric at this moment that, um, that, uh, that, that our individual perspectives are the highest truth, right? And so, um, so really that comes back to this idea that my truth is truth. Well, my truth is truth if it's God's truth, right? If God's truth is informing me, then that's truth, right? God is truth. And so we have to, we have to hold to that, but we also have to be very careful that we are not buying into the cultural lie that my perspective is the monolithic, uh, best perspective or most godly perspective, right? Um, let's, we need to major on what is major. We need to major on what is clear in the scriptures. And then we begin to work things out, uh, from there. So, um, uh, so that's, I think, I think, um, there are lots of ways that, uh, that we, we could talk about that or, or lots of scenarios that we could talk, talk into, but, but here we are first Peter, uh, we're going to continue to chat through these things. So again, love this discussion, love talking through these things here with you and thinking through these things here with you. And these are great questions as, as they come in. I hope that, uh, hope that you're enjoying this dialogue as much as I am. And we will catch you for first Peter part three, as we dive into his second section on ethics. 